Hello, my name is Len Baer. This is episode 48 of Target Justice v. Garland, a podcast about an extraordinary lawsuit. Please say hello to my Sunday co-pilot who has been named Targeted Person of the Year, a woman who is rewriting history, a person to whom we entrust restoration of our constitutional rights, attorney at law, Anna Toledo. How are you doing today, Anna? I'm doing I'm doing well, despite and we've been for I've been for an hour and almost 40 minutes trying to connect. It's a test of our determination and our resilience, and that they're not gonna take the smile from our face. We're gonna do this. We've got this. We have we have a lot to say today. Yes, we certainly do. This week has been really busy. It had several important events. And one of the events, we had an anniversary of filing Targeted Justice v. Garland in the district court in Texas. We had a press conference on the steps of the Houston courthouse. You were a big part of this event. Would you like to say a couple of words? And also, would you please read your statement? Because it is a beautifully written statement I want people to hear. It was beautiful to see there's people that came from Connecticut, people came from Chicago, and it was a beautiful meeting of TIs. And we're going to put, we're going to upload the videos that we made. We had it simultaneously through Zoom as well. Unfortunately, and, but it was expected. The local press didn't come because, you know, either they didn't get our emails were interfered with, and or they were told by their bosses they can't cover us because we're not supposed to exist. It, listed individuals in the two secret categories are not supposed to exist. So, but we did the Zoom and we're going to put it out there. Rain or shine, like you say, nothing is going to stop us from putting the truth out there. I am very grateful for the people that came to the, because it became a rally. You know, it became a rally and it was just... Uh, it was really nice to see and meet wonderful TIs that are committed to ending targeting. I'm going to read you what I read there yesterday. On behalf of Targeted Justice and the 400,000 targeted individuals in the United States and millions around the world, we thank you for coming here today. Today marks the one-year anniversary of the filing of Targeted Justice v. Garland a case demanding the removal of innocent Americans from two secret categories of the Terry Screening Database. Currently pending before the First Circuit Court of Appeals, this case sought, among other remedies, the elimination of a secret blacklist hidden in plain sight within the Terry Screening Database, case number 23-2342. Much has been discussed lately about the watch list, a component of the terrorist screening database, the law enforcement tool authorized by means of executive order to list known and suspected terrorists. The watch list is not the entire list. In fact, it's a very small part of a TSCB. Pursuant to a declaration under penalty of perjury of a former terrorist screening center deputy director, Timothy Groh, given in the Al Haiti versus Cable case, The watch list comprises only the names of known and suspected terrorists. Pursuant to a U.S. Department of Justice audit report of the Terrorist Screening Center, 
the watch list, the known and suspected terrorist components of the terrorist screening database only comprise less than 0.5% of the list. The rest of the TSAB consists of three other categories, at least two of which the FBI has admitted contains the names of people that, and this is a quote, do not represent a threat to national security, as stated by Mr. Groh, and consequently are not screened as such. That's why they never find out when they go to an airport. They are not subjected to additional screening. All of this and more nefarious uncontroverted facts are contained in the audit reports of the Terry Screening Center. In one of them, OIG Audit Report 08-16, the Office of the Inspector General concluded that the FBI field offices made nominations to the TSDB without following agency regulation. Innocent Americans that have never been arrested, indicted, tried, or convicted of a terrorist offense find themselves labeled a suspected terrorist on a list that is distributed to over 18,000 law enforcement agencies, 1,440 organizations, and at least 532 of the biggest corporations in the United States, as well as 60 countries. The people listed in the categories of people vested with a constitutional presumption of innocence were never supposed to find out that they were in handling those three and four categories of the list as they are not subjected to burdensome screening when traveling. The labeling of these innocent Americans devoid of reasonable suspicion criteria to include them on any criminal list distributed through the FBI's National Crime Information Center affects every aspect of their lives, curtailing the inherent freedom they were born into. We ask that Congress, the media, investigate and expose the dark side of the terrorist screening database that goes well beyond the watch list. That was very inspirational. I got the main idea is that the watch listing that everybody's talking about after this U.S. Senate report, after the CBS report, and everybody is now aware of the watch list and that this is a violation of uh, American constitutional rights. But nobody is aware of the dark side. What you mentioned is that the watch list is just a portion of this illegality that is spread like a cancer throughout the executive branch and specifically the FBI. So thank you for that statement, Anna. Let's move on and uh, have our legal segment. Our legal segment today is devoted to a case that we reviewed before. In the episode 40, we spoke about a case that is coming to the Supreme Court and it's called FBI v. Ficker, and the oral arguments were held before the Supreme Court judges on January 8th of this year. That was this past Tuesday. And we will uh, do something different today. We will play a portion of the hearing between Justice Gorsuch and the defendant's lawyer, which I will play. So we will have a little piece of radio theater, something different today. The original case that was filed several years ago, 
this case goes way back to the events in like 2013, correct me if I'm wrong, but the case that went in front of the Supreme Court was filed by the FBI because they were not happy with the ruling of the Ninth Circuit for the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals. This is what FBI defines as an issue in this case, whether respondents claim challenging his placement on the no-fly list are moot, given that he was removed from the no-fly list in 2016. And the government provided a sworn declaration stating that he will not be placed on the no-fly list in the future based on the currently available information. A, a little bit of context. The Ninth Circuit, which is the court from which this ruling came, is the same court that gave us the jewel, the pearl, the Ibrahim case, where they said how she, but she was a Malaysian citizen, right? She had been removed from the no-fly, but he ha she had been left on the TSCB. So this is a court that Ibrahim case versus Department of Homeland Security, it's an x-ray of what is publicly available, you know. It is so damaging to the TSCB operation that the defendants asked the court to seal the case, and the court refused. So that's why you should have in context, number one. Number two, what that statement by the FBI Judge Justice Sotomayor made a wonderful question in the beginning, which was, okay, you put him on the list because he donated to a mosque. Now you took him on the list. If tomorrow he donates to, the, to that mosque, will you put him again? And the attorney for the Department of Justice, they cornered him and they, he finally had to admit that they, that they could or they would. So that's why this statement is not sufficient. Because on the, based on the information we have today, yeah, but tomorrow he can do something completely innocent, completely having nothing to do with terrorism, but they will interpret it as such, and they will put him back in. That's why the Ninth Circuit said, this is not enough. This statement is not enough because it's capable of repetition. It's, it can happen again. And he has a right to know why he was put on the list in the first place, which they're refusing to do. And that's why... FBI went up to the Supreme Court because they don't want them to open that can of worms because that's what it is. It's a can of worms because they're going to find out that there was no reason to put him there in the first place. The appearances on behalf of uh, the petitioners, Mr. Sapan Joshi, he's assistant uh, to the Solicitor General of the Department of Justice. And for the respondent, it was Mr. Gadir Abbas. He is associated with CARE. And this is the summary of uh, Mr. Joshi. This is how much they don't want to talk about this issue, that it was literally one sentence. Respondents no-fly list claims are moot. He is not on the list. He hasn't been on the list in eight years. So their argument is the mootness of the claim, because otherwise... They have to talk about the merits. They will have to go talk about the due process. And so this is how simple their solution is. He is simply not on the list. We have nothing to talk about. Yeah, because they don't want that kind of warrant to open because in their arguments, one of the things it says is if we allow him 
to look into why he was even put there in the first place, you are going to open the doors, the floodgates for other people to do the same. And this court can do that. You know, it's like, yeah, we can trample the rights of people. We can falsely put them, accuse them of being terrorists, falsely put them in a on a list, but they can't have redress. And that's what they're trying to do. The reason I think they took him off the list is because they knew they couldn't win that case. So they took him preemptively off the list not to grant him the opportunity to continue litigating it. It was like, you know, let's make the case move so he, after fighting so hard, you know, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work because the court, at least the Ninth Circuit didn't buy it. And these judges, they were asking very specific questions. They thoroughly read the briefs and they know that what the government is presenting is not necessarily accurate. Let's go to Mr. Abbas summary. His summary goes like this. The government agrees that when a defendant voluntarily ceases conduct challenged in litigation, it has a heavy burden to make absolutely clear that the conduct could not reasonably be expected to recur. But the court right declaration just promises Mr. Ficker that he won't be put back on the no-fly list based on currently available information. And he gives three reasons why it is not acceptable. So, for example, if our client was previously listed for attending the wrong mosque and attends the same mosque this year, the declaration would allow the government to release him. It gets worse. Even if he doesn't attend again, but the government gets new suspicion-inducing information, not about Jonas, that's Mr. Ficker, but about the mosque itself, the declaration likewise allows the government to release. And new fact, not currently known to the government, would allow Jonas to be released consistent with the declaration. So, number one, you can do the same thing, and they will put you back on. The same number two is... There is another information not even related to Mr. Ficker and that he can be put on the list. And if he released in either of those ways, that's recurrence of the challenged conduct. He is disadvantaged in the same fundamental way his complaint was meant to redress. So he goes back to the beginning, just like you said, what put him there in the first place? That's exactly what Judge Sotomayor was, the first question she made was that, is he doesn't even know the conduct that put him on the list. How can he know? And one of the, one of the concerns that the justices have is the First Amendment protected conduct. If I am talking to you, exerting my freedom of expression, and you happen to be a terrorist, why does that make me a terrorist? You know what I mean? And the same with the church. If they are going to a, a mosque and it just so happens that the FBI has them as a terrorist organization, well, it's going to happen again. And, and they are very concerned because this is a violation of First Amendment protected activity that the Homeland Security Presidential Directive 6, when they created this terrorist screening database, clearly states that the agency is not to interfere 
with civil and constitutional rights of the people. And that's exactly what it was created to do. When I was listening to the transcript, I was tuning in to the words due process. And the only judge who really brought this up to the front of the conversation was Justice Gorsuch. So let's do this exercise. You will be Justice Gorsuch and I will be Mr. Joshi. Your Honor, please go ahead. Well, let me tell you, first of all, how honored I am. Justice Gorsuch is the first Columbia graduate to be in the Supreme Court. And he was my classmate at Columbia. I think he lived, I lived in, on Carmen floor 13. And I think he lived on the 8th or, or the 10th. I'm not sure what floor he lived there. And I do remember one, you know, it was like at one in the morning when we would have these discussions about changing the world. And I remember distinctly that he was one of the few people at Columbia that actually knew about Puerto Rico and our political status. Because the other people, some people there, I would tell them that I was the daughter of the Indian chief tribe and that we lived, you know, we walked bare naked and that we uh, didn't have cars that we just, you know, went in, in horses around and we didn't have money. We just bartered. And some people actually believe me. There's some ignorant people there that believe me, but Justice Gorsuch, he knew exactly about the political status and about, you know, at age 18, because uh, that was my first year at Columbia. So anyways, I'm honored. I'm going to read. And he was so on point in his discussion. So he goes, we have an American citizen here who was for years sometime, I don't exactly remember how long, forced to live abroad and fearful about coming home because he didn't know what he was being accused of. Now, the government may well may very well have had good reasons. I don't for a second mean to suggest otherwise, but an American citizen normally has a right to what's being called every man's evidence against him. That's due process. That's a pillar of our democracy. And here the government says, no, you don't get that evidence. I understand. But Justice Kagan suggests an alternative, which is at least share it with a judge at least share the facts with a judge and maybe with clear to counsel. And you can do it in an, in a SCIF, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. There are a lot of them. I imagine you spent a fair amount of time in an SCIF preparing for this case. And the government does that all the time under, under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act under SEPA, Classified Information Procedure Act. Why is it too much to expect with respect to American citizen who's being denied every man's evidence that, that the federal government do at least that when his fundamental liberty, the right to travel, is at stake? Mr. Joshi responds, I think the judge in this case the district court in this case, sensibly realized that he's not on the list and he's been assured he won't be put back on the list based on the currently available. 
I'm not asking about the district court judge. I'm asking the position of the executive branch. And again, whether he might have had a one, one ticket out of jail free card, but his right to travel was thereafter barred or whether he didn't is immaterial. It is his right to travel. It is his right to every man's evidence. And it is when those two things are at stake, it is too much to ask the federal government to share with the district court in an F in a SCIF enough information to be able to assess the mootness question. So that's exactly what we do when these cases get to the merits. If we had remained on the no-fly list, that's what would have happened. That's what happens in other cases. First of all, they knew he was never a terrorist threat, and they took him off the list just to avoid doing that, to avoid going to the marriage, to avoid showing him every man's evidence in violation of the Sixth Amendment that gives you the right to confront the evidence against you, which is what we have been demanding, that innocent Americans are placed on this list without notice and without the chance under the Sixth Amendment to confront that evidence and, and just shut it down because it's fake. It's all fabricated by the FBI. I agree. The extent to which they go to say that, let's not talk about the merits. Let's not talk about the merits. Let's look here. The case is moot because he is no longer on the list. And even if we put him on the list, then we can take him off the list and then we don't have to talk about it again. This is becoming so obvious that I think this is the trick that they w want to do in all these cases. When people complain, they take them off the list and claim that the case is moot. That's exactly it. And in Spanish, we have a saying that is, you can see the inseam. You know, it's like, you know, the inseam you're not supposed to ever see in your clothes, right? But here, you can see the inseam. You, you can see what's behind it. And it is that they knew from the get-go that if a judge sees in camera the alleged reasons, the purported reasons why Mr. Fikra was put on that list, they're going to say, is this is a joke. It really? And then that is what they don't want. Because what, that when he says, you don't want to open those floodgates. He, Mr. Yoshi said it at well, I don't, I don't know if you recall, at some point during the argument, he said, no, no, you, you don't want to do that because you don't want to have other people do the same. So this was our reading of the Scotus transcript. He was trying to play Mr. Joshi. Your impersonation of Justice Gorsuch was magnificent. So this is the end of our legal segment that I call, that's due process. That's a pillar of our democracy. That's what Justice Gorsuch said, and we applaud him. Any predictions about what might happen, what the judges in the Supreme Court uh, might eventually decide? From the get-go, they all seem to be very well informed. And it seemed to me that they, they were in the disposition of confirming the Ninth Circuit decision. That's my impression. I have to comment that I don't understand why Mr. Abbas, the respondents, didn't mention that yeah, he's off the no-fly list, but we don't know if he's still on the terrorist screening database. 
the world's terrorist screening database or data set, as the government wants to rebaptize it, they didn't come up. He didn't say his problems are not over because we don't even know if he's still on the terrorist screening database labeled as a suspected terrorist. And I don't understand why he didn't say that because the judges, one of the judges talked about other lists. And that's why I was just like, I, you know, what am I missing here? But I really think that they read a lot. And I really think that they are very concerned about the due process. And I think that, I think that they are going to give him, allow him to have his day in court, you know, go back to the district court and, and, uh, and follow the process that it's a 10 year old case. So, um, you know, it is in this perseverance, the Ibrahim case, I think took something like 10 years, two or 14 years, but it was well worth it because it's a trove of pearls in there. All the information that the court put out there on the record of how this terrorist screening database operates and how it doesn't. So I really think that they're going to confirm that. I really think and hope that they come from the Ninth Circuit because we are at the time where this is going to end. I think the signals are coming from everywhere. You know, if this is going to be over soon. And, and that's why they are attacking so hard. And that's why, you know, like the fact that we can't even have a normal Zoom conference, that I have to be talking to you on the phone and the video is so slow. It's an act of desperation by the government criminals running this program. This program must simply be over. It's been long overdue. The executive branch is running amok and violating our constitutional rights uh, left and right. The part when you talk about the difference between watch list and TSDB, I think you're the only voice, the targeted justice is the only voice who is openly talking about this blatant controversy. Are you aware of anybody who is uh, bringing the same point? No, and that is the scandal. The big scandal is that the watch list, which was described in the document I sent to you by Mr. Grove, only comprises 0.5% of the database. And what's a scandal is that if people read into what Mr. Friend and Mr. O'Rourke and all those whistleblowers have been talking about, how innocent Americans, how they were pressured as special agents of the FBI to classify as domestic terrorists, innocent Americans, that is nothing but placing them on the TSEB. And the number of names, the, the list of the listed individuals on this list far exceeds by, by 90, it's 97% those, the listed individuals that don't meet the terrorist criteria. That is the scandal, the hidden side of the TSDB, the one that nobody was ever supposed to find out, except that those deputy sheriffs told Richard Lighthouse, no, 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 we have to secure the house. We can't, we can't put you in the ambulance until we secure this house. And that was the best thing that could have happened because without that, we would have not found out that the secret categories of the TSDB, that's what they're for. Now, I don't understand, says Mr. Abbas, the document that I obtained that says that the watch list is comprised of the known and suspected terrorists 
And then the other categories are of people that are the non-investigative subjects. That document came from the El Haiti versus Cable case, which is the discovery carried out by Mr. Abbas. He is the one that did all this wonderful discovery from which I constructed most of the lawsuit with uncontroverted facts admitted by the FBI and the DOJ. So I don't understand why we're the only ones, maybe because uh, most of his clients are in the known and suspected terrorist category, which is handling codes one and two. But now the lawsuit that they just filed in Massachusetts, that lawsuit talks about handling codes three and four and how there's just a lot of people on those, the innocent Americans on those handling codes three and four. Yes, the lawsuit that you mentioned that was filed in Massachusetts, we reviewed it on our last show, and it's called Carula v. Garland. And I think that case will be a culmination of all these lawsuits that we're seeing going through various courts of appeals and will eventually reach the Supreme Court. Moving on to the second segment of our podcast, uh, this is a story published in the New York Times Magazine in September 2021. Uh, it comes from the uh, desk of Ann Toledo, and <laughs> the article is called I Help Destroy People. This article is written about a whistleblower. His name is Terry Albury. He's an idealistic FBI agent who grew so disillusioned by the war on terror that he leaked classified documents to the Intercept and received four-year sentence in the federal prison during Trump's presidency. He will give us an insight in the terror screen database program from the standpoint of an FBI agent. I think this story is remarkable. What is heart-wrenching to me is that here you have a guy, he's supposed to be protected by the whistleblower statute. He is, he came out, he took pictures of, of a lot of evidence to prove the criminality going on in there. And he should have been protected by federal law because that is the Whistleblower Protection Act is for people like him. I think that a lot of FBI agents know about the program. Many others don't, or they're just scared to talk about it because they know that this can happen to him. Because one of the things, important things he says is that the FBI won't tolerate being embarrassed. He uses the word embarrassed publicly. So it doesn't matter if they're embarrassed because they're doing illegal things and they don't want anybody to know the illegal things they do. Well, that sounds to me extremely illegal. Remember that the attorney general during the Trump presidency was Bill Barr, former CIA director. So it's a shame that it didn't get to the level because I think that if should if he would have gone to the executive, honest people that want to make a difference and wanted to clean up the swamp, I don't think this man would have been prosecuted. That's my opinion. I mean, I don't know. But yeah, let's go for it. This is a must-read article. I hope you put the link. I, if not, I'll sh in the show notes, I'll send you uh, in archive to, dot today. And, and I, I, this is a public service announcement to everybody. When you see a really good article that might be removed from the internet, 
you go to archive.today and you put in there the link and it got preserved for eternity so that uh, when you want to search for it again, if you can't find it, you go to archive.today and you're going to find it. It's sort of like your own cloud, but it's, it's a, a universal cloud where there's just articles don't get erased. And that's where I found it. That's another tip from the desk of Anatoly leader. <laughs> Let's get to the story. The story is really fascinating. So when he was prosecuted, the government prosecutors casted him as a compulsive leaker. But Albury says he felt a moral imperative to make his disclosures, motivated by his belief that the Bureau had been so fundamentally transformed by September 11 that its own agents were compelled to commit civil and human rights violation. That's a heck of a statement. In one specific case that uh, Mr. Albury described, uh, we, we're going to call him X, he said X was screwed for life. There was nothing connecting the kid, it was a young gentleman, to terrorism. Albury spent months completing a process known as baseline collection. We're going to talk about it later. Scouring his social media, checking his uh, phone records, running his name through the DMV database, as well as myriad other secret and top secret government databases. But now his name was in the system. And this is what it meant. That meant that any number of government agencies could have access to his file and open him for future harassment, or at best, put an asterisk next to his name that would be with him forever. Now, anytime he applied for a passport or a job that required a background check or a driver's license or simply had a name run through any sort of government database, for the rest of his life, it would show up that he'd been looked at by the FBI, which would inevitably be viewed as suspicious. That was what was so insidious about the process, Mr. Albury said. And this is exactly what all the recent cases that we reviewed in our case, this is for life. We, in the handling content uh, three and four, we don't even have a redress process. So this is definitely for life. And this is the aspect that uh, he thought was so insidious. Yeah, he just described the component of the terrorist screening database that is made up of innocent people. Like him, he knows, you know, the other whistleblowers don't don't seem to have known so much. I think that after this happened, a lot of it was like encapsulated and not many people knew about it. But notice how without even probable cause, they put this agent to look through everything about that person to see what he can dig up. This is like putting like the horse in front of the carriage. I mean, uh, behind the carriage, because it's like, you, we don't have anything on this person. We want to make him a criminal. So see what you can find for him to, to, to support the fact that he's a criminal. That, and that's what they do with the people that they're putting in handling codes three and four. Just see, we decided he has to be a criminal. See how you can back it up. Yes. This is why I want to highlight this 
process known as baseline collection. This is what happened in December 2008. And that was before Mr. Barr was the attorney general. It's his predecessor. Before he left the office, he instituted this series of changes to the FBI's investigative guidelines. These guidelines were implemented that permitted agents to open low-level investigations known as assessments without any formal claim or wrongdoing or even a credible tip. All that was needed was an agent's assertion that there was a clearly defined objective in looking at a subject to initiate the baseline collection process. Think about it for a second. I can choose, I can pick a person. And for as long as I define my objective, what I'm going to do about this person, uh, I can open a file on him. See, that's putting the card before the horse. I'm going to pick a person. And then I'm going to decide what I'm going to look for with respect to this person. So, I don't need to get a tip about this person. I can just pick a person. So, And as long as I clearly define my objective, I can uh, have a file open. This is so egregious. I just really, I don't have any words for it. And over the next two years after this change was implemented, the FBI opened nearly 43,000 counterterrorism-related assessments. Though... Fewer than 2,000 led to further investigation. But the files were open. If you remember 2008, 2009, 2010, these are the years when the TSDB numbers were reset. So there's more to the story than just changing the, the guidelines. It really changed the way the FBI was opening the cases. And the FBI has admitted... Mr. Ray has admitted that they have carried out 200,000 assessment of innocent Americans. And that correlates to the targeted individual population, or a little less, obviously. But they admitted it, I think, two years ago. So that's probably, you know, it has grown in the past two years. And it's publicly available information. What was the explanation for doing these assessments on American citizens that have a constitutional right, first of all, a presumption of innocence, second of all, a right to confront any, to give, be given notice and to confront any evidence against them. And that's clearly, you know, after these assessments, that's how they put the people on the terrorist screening database without reasonable suspicion. And they, the thing is, Len, they admit, they admit that they carry out this illegal conduct of placing people without reasonable suspicion that ties them to terrorism under secret criteria. It's out in the open, and I cannot think of anything more illegal than that, that they are admitting to it. This is how the article ends. These are the words of uh, Terry Albury himself. There is this mythology surrounding the war on terrorism and the FBI that has given agents the power to ruin the lives of completely innocent people based solely on what part of the world they came from 
or what religion they practice or the color of their skin. And I did that. I helped destroy people for 17 years. Terry Albury, we thank you for coming uh, out, for blowing the whistle in this process. And perhaps you can help to free target individuals, not only uh, Muslim American Americans affected by this insidious program. Well, I can only say Mr. Albury at least can sleep at night. But I wonder how all those FBI agents that place innocent Americans on this list, knowing what they face, I wonder how they can sleep at night. I wonder how the InfraGuard people that did this little number on us and they're constantly doing our surveillance, how can they sleep at night? Just for money? You know, how can you destroy hardworking, innocent, honest, decent American lives just for money? Is that it? You know, because that's what it boils down to. FBI wants more money for their agency, so they have to bulge the amount of people on that list. And and it's all about the money. The contractors want to have, they're dying to put more people on that list because it represents more money for them. And they don't care about the obliteration and destruction of innocent, hardworking Americans. They don't, they don't care. Mr. Aubrey can sleep at night. I don't think the same about the other FBI agents that destroy the lives of so many. But we need them. We need the FBI agents who want to help to stop this process. We need all these whistleblowers. I, I'm praying that Mr. Stephen Friend will one day see through the targeting program, not as a group of mentally off individuals, but people with real claims. He needs to connect the dots. And so is his friend, Mr. Friend's friend. And so many other FBI agents, it's been way too long. We have real claims. They're not fantastical. They're not out of this world. We are people who live amongst you and we suffer daily from directed energy attacks, from organized stalking, from VDK, from remote neural monitoring, and it has to stop. Thank you, Anna, for bringing these very important articles to our attention. I hope people get as outraged as we have. This is the end of our show, and I would like to hear some final words from you, Anna. What's on your mind? I just wanted to thank everybody that gathered here uh, in Houston yesterday, and they went to the, the meeting, to the Targeted Justice meeting. Uh, I wanted from the bottom of my heart because it was such a beautiful gathering. And even though the press didn't show up and we just did it through Zoom, it was so empowering and it was so beautiful. So I just want to thank you all. And I think this is something that we should do every six months and start growing our numbers. And the other thing that I wanted to just mention, which I'm going to be putting in Twitter out there and probably, I don't know, Facebook, or, it's that I'm going to be doing a Spanish conference for the people whose ministers, pastors, don't understand, cannot provide the help 
that they need as targeted individuals because they don't understand the program. So it's going to be in Spanish. It's January 22nd. I'm going to be circulating that. Um, for, for If you know a TI that, that speaks Spanish and that needs this, please share it because we're just trying to raise awareness among those leaders that can give that support, maybe prevent a suicide, maybe prevent an unreasonable hospitalization. So if you can, if, even if it's not for you, please share it. That's, that's what I'm going to be asking. Thank you. As to me, I'm calling this episode after Justice Gorsuch's words during this week's oral argument. Every man's evidence. Of course, he's talking about the due process, which is a pillar of our democracy. Watch listing has become a part of the public conversation. That's great. The cat is out of the bag. And there is no return to the status quo artificially maintained by the executive branch that has been abusing the process, making up categories and stripping American citizens of their most fundamental constitutional rights without a hint of embarrassment. We targeted individuals are also listed individuals. And we will be riding this way of the sweeping changes to the TSDB that is surely to come. And we at Targeted Justice v. Garland Podcast will be keeping you abreast of all the caveats and hidden underwater rocks by being a lighthouse, pun intended, for all the ships navigating in this stormy weather. So, until next Sunday, rain or shine.